I can certainly say I don't have a clue, but I can make some guesses. If you were to predict the domain or aspect of social life, where we might observe the most significant negative societal and psychological change in response to the pandemic, what would it be? These are terrible questions, by the way. Welcome back to the World After COVID mini-series of the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next 20 minutes, you'll be hearing insights and forecasts from some of the world's leading thinkers on what our post-pandemic world may look like, for good and for bad, and what kinds of wisdom may best help us navigate this new world. Igor, hello. How you doing? Hi, Charles. I'm good. How are you doing? Good. I have water today. I, I have had a beer earlier, but I'm, not, I, I'm a professional. I'm not drinking on the job anymore. Those days are behind me. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I have water too. Yeah, so so today is, it's funny because today is about negatives, right? And I have received feedback from various family members. They're like, oh my God, you haven't done the negatives yet, but you guys sound so negative in all the podcasts you recorded so far. Um, so there was a little bit of dismay when I mentioned, no, this time we're focusing on the negatives. Um, right. So let, you know, let's try and keep the energy up. That's all I'm saying. Uh-huh. Let's yeah. try it. All right. So shall I just dive in with our first quote of the day? Well, maybe before we do that, so the question here is what? The fa- question oh, yeah, to, right, for right, our right. listeners is, yeah. which domain or aspect of social life will show the most significant negative societal and or psychological change in response to the pandemic? Okay. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, caveats, that's the question you asked. That's not necessarily the question that some people answered. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Which <laughs> is very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, we've got some good ones. So, um, all right, I'm going to start start us off. Please go ahead. In North America, we're likely to see that inequality trends, which have already been going in the wrong direction, uh, are likely to be exacerbated by this. One of the reasons why is because of the unequal educational opportunities. So in the best of times, elementary and high school kids tend to see what we call a summer learning loss, which is that over the summer months, a lot of what they learned during the school year uh, regresses, uh, both in terms of their mathematical ability and their verbal ability. But unfortunately, that's bad enough. It's not equally distributed among the economic spectrum. Uh, The richest kids actually see a boost because they go back to a home environment that's actually quite enriched. School tends to be the equalizer. But when these students go back to their homes, they go back to very different environments. The poorest students go back to the least enriched environments, have the least opportunities for uh, uh, this enrichment. And as a result, they see the steepest declines in their learning. Now, One of the worst things about this is that those inequalities accumulate over the years, which leads ultimately to a substantial achievement gap between the rich and poor, caused predominantly by uh, what happens when they're out of school rather than uh, differences when they're in school. What this pandemic has brought is that on steroids. First of all, the summer period uh, when, when students were out of school was much longer, uh, twice as long, and it might continue. We don't know when we're opening schools again. Uh, furthermore, um, there was some expectation that students were supposed to learn remotely or at home or get school taught. Those opportunities were not equally distributed as well uh, due to unequal access to uh, technology or uh, uh, parents having different abilities uh, to homeschool given their work schedules. As a result, uh, we're likely to see stark inequalities that may last for decades. We've already seen some preliminary data in terms of these abilities sliding and sliding at different pitches. Um, 
if they accumulate, which they likely will with the rest of the summer learning losses, we might see uh, certain students falling behind for the rest of their lives. Um, that's bad. Hmm. I thought I thought it was fascinating, but um, am I surprised? I'm not surprised. I mean, aren't you a teacher? <laughs> I know, but it was it was just the clarity of the mechanism by which you could see. Oh, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense now. But but let's let's backpedal a little bit. Who are we, who are we listening to? And and I can tell you when it is actually. I think this is um, July time. Um, but who is it? Yeah, early July. Oh, and this is Azim Sharif. Uh, he is a professor, associate professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia. And uh, he does all sorts of interesting things. He's um, does uh, research at the intersection of morality and social mm. psychology, and to some extent, research on inequality, which is what we hear him speaking to. Yeah, right. And so, I mean, I guess the idea of social inequality is broad and quite abstract, and people sort of get it. But what I found interesting about this was he was just sort of breaking it down into the specific mechanism that you could see. It, every step of it kind of makes logical sense, and you go, yeah, I guess... That's how it happens. And it was nice to have a kind of precise explanation. I mean, I'm sure it's only part of the explanation of how social inequality happens, of course. But it made sense of, right, I can see that if you extend the period, I mean, if this if this is the case that, you know, students progress at the same rate during term time, but when they're, you know, outside of school, they're going to fall behind. Uh, if you right. then just keep them out of school for months upon months upon months, uh, right. that, that period, you know, that factor is going to multiply dramatically so like as you put it you know it's like it's the normal system but on steroids you know i i heard of a um uh an interesting scenario where a local school that had been closed because it was a pandemic i think this was somewhere outside washington dc a company had taken over the school and was if you had children at home and you were trying to work at home but you couldn't because you, you're also trying to, you know, keep your children working on their online lessons. You could send them for a fee. You could send them to this school where there would be adults there who would make sure they got logged on. So you had this kind of weird scenario where kids were being sent to school, the, the school right. that had been taken over by a company, because their parents who were at home couldn't work because their kids <laughs> were at home. It's quite a strange setup. It is. And I wonder who could afford sending their kids exactly. back to school in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's, again, it's the, the different groups in society are going to be able to access those quickly spun up alternatives um, to a lesser or greater degree. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, so the next one, I think it's time for me to move on. I, the next one, I really, really like this interview. And I would encourage people to just listen, go listen to the whole thing. Let me play it and you can then tell us who it is. The lockdown measures have led to an epidemic of loneliness. There's been a rise in intimate partner violence uh, because people are stuck at home. Their police are less able to respond. Uh, so there's a lot of bad stuff that has happened as a, as a result of the pandemic. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you have to understand that something very unusual in the life of our species has happened. It's happened to have happened in 2020, when we're alive, it happens every 50 or 100 years. It just happens to be happening now, which is that a new serious pathogen is being introduced into our species. And this germ, SARS-CoV-2, is going to circulate among us forever now. And it's going to do what it wants. It's a living thing. I mean, there's some debate about whether viruses are living, but for the sake of argument, it's acting like a living thing. And it's had an ecological release. This pathogen, as I argue in Apollo Zero, is, you know, just 
we're a, a wholly, uh, you know, uh, susceptible population. It's like releasing rats on an isolated island and then they just decimate the local wildlife because that's what they do. That's what this germ is going to do. It's just going to move among us. It has its own will to survive and it's just going to kill us until it ends. And that's a topic for another conversation. Okay. Who's that, Eagle? Uh, so this is my friend Nicholas Christakis, who is a Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University and happens to be one of the leading uh, sociologists, a, a person at the intersection of sociology and epidemiology, who has studied uh, how mm. pandemic, uh, previous pandemic spreads through social networks. And uh, he has just published a new book specifically on the effect of the pandemic on our society, Apollo Sarah, which he also featured in this little snippet. Right. And this is September time, uh, just to give a sort of timestamp on it. That's right. A little bit of background here. We had Nicholas Christakis lined up. I think we kind of organized it like December 2019. We eventually had it scheduled for like the first week of March and then got a message from (laughs) the pandemic hit. And I was like, well, that was lucky. We got an epidemiologist lined up ahead of the pandemic to come on the show and then uh, got a message from his team saying... Nicholas is quite busy. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, there's a pandemic happening and uh, we're going to have to postpone the, the podcast. So, High demand. Yeah. He was also writing the book. Yeah. So it was, I, I thought, you know, we got, we'd got a real coup by booking him in ahead of time. But then, um, you know, he had very important things to do and I'm glad he did focus on those rather than coming on our podcast. Right. So why did you pick this quote, Charles? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think I've been a bit sneaky here. I This is perhaps my favourite interview of all the interviews that um, uh, I have uh, enjoyed on the World After Covid site. And mm-hmm. when I was, uh, I was looking for something about loneliness, um, and this quote does refer to loneliness in it. So I thought, all right, I can put this in for loneliness, but really, I just want to talk <laughs> right. about. I just want to talk about this interview because it's <laughs> okay. Well, let's yeah. talk about this interview. So, yeah. wh- what is it about it? I, I really like the fact he talks earlier in the interview about how there are benefits and costs to being a social species. Um, right. And there are obviously huge benefits, right? We, we, we benefit from those and, and take it and have full be- advantage of those most of the time, you know, working together, you know, cooperation, you know, innovation, et cetera, all the kind of things that uh, language enables us to do. So being a social species is fantastic in so many ways, but yes. it, it comes with its downsides and its downsides are that things like epidemics can spread very easily through social species. I just liked the fact that he was, he was sort of arguing in the earlier parts of this interview that if you're going to be a social species, you're going to have the benefit of all those things that come with being highly connected. Every so often, you're going to have to deal with some of those negative aspects. And one of those is something that we're living through now. Um, so he just sort of described it as the downside of a very large upside of, of how yeah. we're living as a society, um, as a species. Uh, and that kind of made sense. It, it made it sort of put in context a little bit. It was like, obviously, this is devastating and terrible, but the benefits we get from being so highly connected do outweigh these every 50, 100-year epidemics. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. You know, it's it's interesting also from the perspective of the globalization. And we had some other mm. uh, folks on uh, as part of this World of the COVID series who mentioned globalization. Um, I think Shinobu Kitayama was one of them. Right, yeah. Uh, who talked about the dangers of being so interconnected. Mm. And then leaving some people behind mm. uh, at the same time 
And because we are so interconnected, uh, and this goes back now to, to Nicola, what Nicholas is saying, mm-hmm. uh, it's so much easier to spread uh, yeah. the diseases. Like, uh, for instance, if you compare it to the Spanish flu, where yeah. we did not have people flying around, uh, the uh, mm-hmm. speed of the spread was much slower. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, to an extent, easier to isolate. Yeah. Uh, but now the free borders, I mean, until we put, of course, all those locks and uh, yeah. on the borders, which was very hard to do, as you may remember, yeah. at the beginning yeah. of this pandemic. Yeah. So that yeah. that is this downside. Uh, I like that. Yeah. Do you, do you see um, there's a rising sort of chorus against globalization? Uh, we've kind of spoken about this a little bit. Probably. We spoke about that. Yeah. Yes. But do you think do you think people are going to be... Um, there's going to be a stronger case against it now with, you know, this, the ease of spread of epidemics. Do you think in the next sort of decade, people will be saying, let's consolidate our businesses in one part of the world. Let's try and limit air travel, et cetera, from this, yeah. from this perspective? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not the fortune teller. So I would like hey, to... Come on, this to... is about... Predi- you've, asked, you've asked 57 scientists to make predictions, Igor. It's time to put some skin yeah. in the game. <laughs> uh, or not, or precisely not. for that reason. Yeah. Uh, I do think that, uh, you know, like folks who have been spending more time thinking about that than I have, mm, uh, yeah. including from the uh, US intelligence community, a recently published piece that is publicly available. It's not classified, so I can talk about it. <laughs> it's not classified. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you never know. Yeah. Uh, and in this piece, they outline the visions for the future, suggest roughly like three different scenarios. One of them is where we'll be living in a world where we are progressing and uh, cooperating because we need to and because everybody understands that there is a mutual benefit from cooperation. And there's another world in which uh, there will be more siloed communities with spheres of influence by uh, different geopolitical powers, uh, given the rise and uh, arguably increasingly uh, increasing dominance of China. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's, of course, the Russian sphere to some Mm -hmm. extent and Mm -hmm. the American sphere. And so that may also lead to sort of uh, clusters within which you will see some cooperation, but very little globalization as we know it right now. Okay. And the third scenario in which it was almost like a Mad Max scenario. I mean, they don't exaggerate as much as you would imagine <laughs> it in the Mad Max, but let's use Mad Max as an analogy where okay. you have the city-states yes. and, uh, you know, they all fight uh, for each other. Uh, so, you know, which of those three mm. will happen? Who knows? I think the idea of local production I mean, it's arguably beneficial to have some forms of a distribution, and I don't think we'll be going away from that anywhere. Uh, but where exactly and how exactly this distribution it will look like? Mm. That's a good question. And second, what exactly will be distributed? Instead of distributing everything, as has been done sort mm. of like the, during this first phase of globalization, mm. maybe before this pandemic, mm. we'll probably see greater capacity for production of certain things like the vaccines or certain Mm. uh, materials Mm. uh, within each country, if those can afford doing so. I mean, Mm. again, like that will probably exacerbate inequality. And uh, that's one thing that we have to realize, you know, in the way globalization exacerbates inequality, in a Mm. way it uh, makes it easier for some Mm. low-income countries to get access and to also get um, some form of economic mobility in their society. If yeah. we don't have globalization, we will not have that anymore. Yeah, I mean, the idea that globalization would only do good or only do bad is obviously <laughs> massively simplistic. That's right. Yeah, uh, it will have many, many impacts, some of which will be good and some of which will be bad. Igor, you got some quotes for us? I do. Clearly, the economic damage is a serious concern, uh, which could uh, compromise our society 
for a long period of time and uh, you know, potentially stunt uh, uh, the careers and life courses of, of, of countless young people who are uh, at, at critical stages in their in their careers and in their life development. Uh, another related thing is that lots of politicians look at a crisis as something they can use to advance their own agenda. Uh, the phrase, don't let a good crisis go to waste, uh, means, well, there's a problem. Now we have a, a pandemic and people are getting sick. Uh, but this is a chance to advance our other uh, goals uh, that uh, we may have had um, before the pandemic was even a, an idea or, or a concern in anyone's mind, let alone a reality. Um, so uh, what happens in many of these cases will be an expansion of, of government power, uh, more um, structures, more bureaucracy, uh, and, and people, when they are worried, they are more willing to give up some of their freedom uh, to cede to an authority, uh, which will take care of them. Now, it's an illusion in this case. It's not clear the government can really take care of us. The, uh, the, the pandemic is a, is a disease. Uh, but that would be the natural human impulse. This is uh, Roy Baumeister. Roy Baumeister is uh, one of the, if not the most, cited social psychologist who is alive today. Oh, wow. And uh, he's a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland. He was in Florida for a long time before that. And um, this is from June 18th of last year. So also mid of the summer. Right. So he's talking about a couple of different things. Maybe there's there's this kind of economic damage piece. And then there's this other, That's right. other idea that a crisis, you know, can be an opportunity to advance agendas. So which of those pieces did you, is it you'd like both of those ideas or was one more important to you? Or what led you to this one? Well, uh, there are two things that I think are interesting. And I, I, I like the idea of diversity of opinions. And uh, clearly, Roy mm -hmm. is coming from the perspective uh, that is, um, in some ways, more libertarian. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I yeah. was thinking that when he's talking about the, you know, how people are prepared to give up their freedoms for the, you know, for this false idea the state can protect them. I was like, that does sound like a, a libertarian position for sure. Yeah, or neoliberal position, a strongly a liberal position, I would mm -hmm. say. So I, I thought, like, you know, having somebody who raises this issue among the academics, which is not very common, sure. because. Um, more academics are probably aligned with the sort mm -hmm. of more left-oriented perspectives is a good thing, just, just mm -hmm. to see those people, in part because they discussed in the general community. And, of course, we've seen the dramatic clash between the more libertarian folks, uh, and I'm not talking about the QAnon and all the other similar variants uh, who, who think that the pandemic is uh, manufactured by the evil Jews who want to drink your blood and blood of your children, <laughs> uh, right? Uh, but, but I'm talking about people who just uh, think that this is not worth the sacrifices right. that they had to make and uh, that the economic prosperity uh, is important and uh, not to mm. neglect. And uh, that, that's the discussion we have had the whole time and continue having any time we have lockdowns, because who knows, maybe we'll have another lockdown. Mm. Right now, Toronto is in the lockdown once again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure it's not the last one, because who knows what will happen in the fall. Mm. The idea of considering the arguments, I think, is very important. So, But I actually think uh, the reason why I picked this quote is not because of the libertarian angle, which I think is you know, worth discussing, but rather this first part about uh, the sacrifices and the consequences of 
the pandemic for young adults mm. who will not have the opportunities and will never be able to make up for the losses by not starting their jobs on time mm. or mm. like losing potentially uh, some advances that they would have. There's, there's a huge opportunity cost for them and that one may not be recoverable. Uh, so economists in the future will probably be able to tell us, but right mm. now it's just hard to foresee what exactly is the number that you can put down for how how bad the opportunity cost has been for young so adults. Is that the idea that like, that it's sort of a cumulative thing. They didn't start earning this year, so they'll, you know, that means, you know, they're going to be one behind, one year behind in their, or two years behind in their career, and over, over a career like that can lead to a huge amount of difference in earnings. Because it, because another right. way of looking at it is just it's just one year. You just miss one year. Why? Yeah, this this has to do with this uh, kind of exponential effect. It's very mm. similar to the exponential effect of uh, COVID the, the itself. Pandemic. Yeah, right. Yeah, so where you're like, well, it's just one more case. I mean, what yeah. does it matter? We just have yeah. this, uh, but yeah. then you don't understand that just like a small rise at the beginning can lead to a dramatic rise just uh, several days later. Yeah. Um, in a similar way, not having an opportunity for earning earlier on can have dramatic consequences later on. And also like just re- reducing the number of jobs, uh, reducing the pool of what's available mm. without, you know, they still have the same number of people, young adults. Yeah. You will end up with a much greater competition, which means that people will have to be satisfied with much lower entry positions that they would have had otherwise. And that's exactly what uh, the issue is here. So like if you sort yeah. of start lower, just a little bit lower at the beginning, yeah. it leads to yeah. dramatic consequences later. I imagine um, in terms of competition for jobs, you would have like another year of uh, graduates graduating, then, then, and then you'd have the previous year and that new year of graduates both mm-hmm. uh, applying for that, that same limited number of jobs. That, that's a problem. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that, I don't really have much more to say about that, but it, it seems like we, we're not really going to know a number on that till, what, five, ten years' time. That's right, because this is uh, something that unfolds over time and accumulates over time. And we'll really need to see also what kind of corrective initiatives the governments in different parts of the world will start to help folks to make up for the losses that they've had. Right. Okay, so what else have you got for us, Igor? Okay, let me play another one. Mm-hmm. I think that the ones that come to head uh, to my mind very easily, I'm sure to many others also, is the fear of socializing and being out out, that many people probably have, uh, some sort of existential despair about the fate of society and humanity, helplessness about loss of, loss of life, loss of significant others, jobs, opportunities, being unable to use one skill set. I know of people who basically will have to... Uh, completely change their professional their profession um, because they have jobs that are basically going to disappear. It's very frustration to see your identity, professional identity, go out of the window like that uh, because of a pandemic where certain things and certain activities uh, cease to exist. And I think all of this, sadly, is going to be magnified for individuals who struggle with mental health issues and, uh, and who have lack of social support and professional resources and stability. Wow, this is a pretty this is a negative episode. I mean, we did we did put a disclaimer at the start that it would be. This is negative. Mm, fair enough. So, who are we listening to? So, this is my uh, good friend uh, Veronica Benet Martinez, uh, who is a is a ICREA professor at Pompeu Fabra University in Spain in Barcelona. And this is from June thirteenth 
of last year. And what's remarkable about this uh, video, or oh, you, you heard the audio, but it's also yeah. the video that you can see on the website, is that it's the only one, if I remember, no, that's one of the two that was filmed outside. And I was very jealous of Veronica when she <laughs> was filming because we were all stuck inside in our houses, not daring to come out. And she was sitting in the backyard, obviously also of her place, but it seemed like she had more... Uh, room because she was outside yeah. and not uh, stuck yeah. in the apartment twenty four seven. So always so okay. This is quite an abstract idea, and I want to like dig in a little bit. So um, sure. this idea of despair came up as a theme, right? Yes. Uh, and I realized when I was listening to it, I don't really know what despair means. Like, it, it, how do you in this world of psychology? How do you sort of define something like? you know, existential despair about the fate of society. That just seems like I can't even get my head around how you'd measure well, it, what it looks like, what, is it, what does it mean? Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, what we can mean by despair is mm. the loose of hope. So it's hopelessness. Okay, and, right, uh, so right. that's the official definition of despair, okay, if okay. you want about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And existential despair, I guess, is a form of losing hope in the structural forces that help you uh, maintain the existence, be it, uh, you know, how you believe uh, in the governments, how you believe in yep. other people, yep. whether uh, the planet that you live on can support you living on that planet. Right. So she she's referring to existential despair about the fate of society. It's saying that people are losing hope that society can continue in, in this current form. It is going to fall apart. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. And now it's a time. This is what interesting way to give the time stamp on it, because now that feels an excessively negative uh, and unrealistic picture. You know, Does looking, it? to me now, I don't think I mean, I think at the time it kind of felt like perhaps society was going to fall apart. But I don't to, totally fair enough. You know, it's a, we've got a lot more perspective now. But um, it, it, this is the first time I've heard one of these quotes. And I thought that really does sound like it comes from a very different point in the yes. journey. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, like the middle of last year, mm. um, the summer, George Floyd protests mm. and uh, obviously the tragic incident that led to the protest, the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. the climate crisis, the bushfires in Australia, the Iran sort of shooting down Ukrainian plane uh, right before that, and then the pandemic. So all that together mm -hmm. does create a certain feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, now, a year in, we, I think, I'm not sure whether we solved any of this, I guess the kind of the pandemic occupied all our minds, except that mm. I do think that we did see some initial steps in the right direction addressing the social inequality or maybe at least some attempts mm. to do so by the larger corporations and uh, media companies. But, uh, you know, the climate change didn't go anywhere. And yeah. I do think that there's still, a, I, I do think there's some despair among those people who, when you hear, when I hear tired, I'm tired, I can't mm. do this anymore. Mm. This has been dragging for over a year. And a lot of people talk like that, right? Yeah, I do hear some true. despair. I mean, it's not really existential despair, unless it's the person who also then brings in, oh, and yes, and yes, climate change. Yeah. And, and there's <laughs> yeah, nothing no. we can do. <laughs> You're right, actually. I mean, because another way, uh, okay, so there's two obvious, and there's, there'll be more, but there's two obvious explanations for why I no longer feel the way we felt back then. 
One is that, like, because that's not the case anymore. That's one possible explanation. And the other obvious one is that um, I've just recalibrated. I've just kind of, <laughs> I've just now factored in that, yeah, we just live in p- pandemic times now. So it's not that things right. have improved. It's just I've become sort of used to. Numb. New, yeah, I'm, yeah, or it's just, it's that new normal idea, isn't it? It, it no longer yeah. seems like a sign of society falling apart and the end of civilization as we know it to be wearing masks and you know not being able to see anyone that almost just kind of seems normal now but you're actually you're totally right we haven't really oh we've got the vaccines that's good that's massive progress in that regard but um, got some uh, vaccines some people got, got some vaccines let's put some, it this way the sum is very important to clarify here <laughs> vaccines exist Let, I, i'll say that but for the rich uh, yes but we don't we haven't really addressed any of those other problems really i don't think because like you say we've in a way i mean i wonder yeah because we've been so focused on this this most recent pressing problem things like the climate have just been kind of said yeah we'll get around to that when we've when we've sorted this out which is a bit worrying it is a big worry because maybe that will make the next pandemic come much sooner some people worry about that so that's here mm. here goes with uh, nicholas christakis forecast that it only happens every 50 to 100 years maybe we'll actually accelerate that with climate right. change oh geez can you imagine, imagine doing this all over again well i guess i mean that is that is sort of what he's saying. Like, I, I can't imagine we're going to do anything that's going to fundamentally change things to the point where there won't be another pandemic in that in that sort of loop. Fifty. That's right. Yeah. Maybe greater preparedness. Maybe. Yeah. People have short memories, though. That's right. Yeah. Igor, this has been pretty negative. It has been negative, but it is what it is. It is what it is. You got to face the negatives. Maybe we should wrap it up, and we can come back to some more negatives in the next episode. Yeah, in case you didn't have enough negative stuff, yeah, stay tune in tuned. at the same time next week. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's not in very, it's not very enticing, is it? But um, I'll open the newspaper and read the latest news on yeah. the progress of the COVID in different parts of the world. <laughs> Bye. Take care. Take care. And that's it for today's episode of the World After COVID miniseries. Thank you to our listeners. Igor, big question: if people want to know more about the project. Where do they go? they can go to the www.worldaftercovid.info. Please stay well and safe. Goodbye.